0: Section 44 of Montcalm and Wolfe by Francis Parkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18, 1757, 1758. Pitt. The war kindled in the American forest was now raging in full conflagration among the kingdoms of Europe, and in the midst stood Frederick of Prussia, a veritable fire-king. He had learned through secret agents that he was to be attacked, and that the wrath of Maria Theresa with her two allies, Pompadour and the Empress of Russia, was soon to wreak itself upon him. With his usual prompt audacity, he anticipated his enemies, marched into Saxony, and began the Continental War. His position seemed desperate. England, sundered from Austria, her old ally, had made common cause with him, but he had no other friend worth the counting. France, Russia, Austria, Sweden, Saxony, the collective German Empire, and most of the smaller German states, had joined hands for his ruin, eager to crush him and, divide the spoil, parcelling out his dominions among themselves in advance by solemn, mutual compact. Against the five millions of Prussia were arrayed populations of more than a hundred million. The little kingdom was open on all sides to attack, and her enemies were spurred on by the bitterest animosity." it was thought that one campaign would end the war the war lasted seven years and prussia came out of it triumphant such a warrior as her indomitable king europe has rarely seen if the seven years war made the maritime and colonial greatness of england it also raised prussia to the rank of a first-class power Frederick began with a victory, routing the Austrians in one of the fiercest of recorded conflicts, the Battle of Prague. Then, in his turn, he was beaten at Cologne. All seemed lost. The hosts of the coalition were rolling in on him like a deluge. Surrounded by enemies in the jaws of destruction, hoping for little but to die in battle, this strange hero solaced himself with an exhaustless effusion of bad verses sometimes mournful sometimes cynical sometimes indignant and sometimes breathing a dauntless resolution till when his hour came he threw down his pen to achieve those feats of arms which stamp him one of the foremost soldiers of the world the french and imperialists in overwhelming force thought to crush him at rosbach he put them to shameful rout and then instead of bonfires and te deums mocked at them in doggerel rhymes of amazing indecency while he was beating the french the austrians took silesia from him he marched to recover it found them strongly posted at leuthen eighty thousand men against thirty thousand and without hesitation resolved to attack them never was he more heroic than on the eve of this his crowning triumph the hour is at hand he said to his generals i mean in spite of the rules of military art to attack prince Karl's army which is nearly thrice our own. This risk I must run or all is lost. We must beat him or die, all of us, before his batteries. He burst unawares upon the Austrian left and rolled their whole host together, core upon core, in a tumult of irretrievable ruin. While her great ally was reaping a full harvest of laurels, England, dragged into the Continental War because that apple of discord, Hanover, belonged to her king, found little but humiliation. Minorca was wrested from her, and the ministry had an innocent man shot to avert from themselves the popular indignation, while the same ministry, scared by a phantom of invasion, brought over German troops. To defend british soil but now an event took place pregnant with glorious consequence the reins of power fell into the hands of william pitt he had already held them for a brief space forced into office at the end of seventeen fifty six by popular clamor in spite of the whig leaders and against the wishes of the king but the place was untenable. Newcastle's Parliament would not support him. The Duke of Cumberland opposed him. The King hated him, and in April 1757 he was dismissed. Then ensued eleven weeks of bickering and dispute, during which, in the midst of a great war, England was left without a government. It became clear that none was possible without Pitt, and none with him could be permanent and strong, unless joined with those influences which had thus far controlled the majorities of Parliament. Therefore an extraordinary union was brought about, Lord Chesterfield acting as go-between to reconcile the ill-assorted pair. One of them brought to the Alliance the confidence and support of the people, the other court management, borough interest, and parliamentary connections. Newcastle was made first Lord of the Treasury, and Pitt, the old enemy who had repeatedly browbeat and ridiculed him, became Secretary of State, with the lead of the House of Commons and full control of the war and foreign affairs. It was a partnership of Magpie and Eagle, the dirty work of government intrigue bribery and all the patronage that did not affect the war fell to the share of the old politician if pitt could appoint generals admirals and ambassadors newcastle was welcome to the rest i will borrow the duke's majorities to carry on the government said the new secretary and with the audacious self-confidence that was one of his traits he told the duke of devonshire i am sure that i can save this country and that nobody else can england hailed with one accord the undaunted leader who asked for no reward but the honour of serving her the hour had found the man for the next four years this imposing figure towers supreme in British history. He had glaring faults, some of them of a sort not to have been expected in him. Vanity, the common weakness of small minds, was the most disfiguring foible of this great one. He had not the simplicity which becomes greatness so well. He could give himself theatrical airs strike attitudes and dart stage lightnings from his eyes yet he was formidable even in his affectations behind his great intellectual powers lay a burning enthusiasm a force of passion and fierce intensity of will that gave redoubled impetus to the fiery shafts of his eloquence and the haughty and masterful nature of the man had its share in the ascendancy which he long held over Parliament. He would blast the labored argument of an adversary by a look of scorn or a contemptuous wave of the hand. The great commoner was not a man of the people in the popular sense of that hackneyed phrase though himself poor being a younger son he came of a rich and influential family he was patrician at heart both his faults and his virtues his proud incorruptibility and passionate domineering patriotism bore the patrician stamp yet he loved liberty and he loved the people because they were the english people the effusive humanitarianism of to-day had no part in him, and the democracy of to-day would detest him. Yet to the middle-class England of his time, that unenfranchised England which had little representation in Parliament, he was a voice, an inspiration, and a tower of strength. He would not flatter the people but turning with contempt from the tricks and devices of official politics, he threw himself with a confidence that never wavered on their patriotism and public spirit. They answered him with a boundless trust, asked but to follow his lead, gave him without stint their money and their blood, loved him for his domestic virtues and his disinterestedness, believed him even in his self-contradiction and idolized him even in his bursts of arrogant passion it was he who waked england from her lethargy shook off the spell that newcastle and his fellow enchanters had cast over her and taught her to know herself again a heart that beat in unison with all that was british found responsive throbs in every corner of the vast empire that through him was to become more vast with the instinct of his fervid patriotism he would join all its far extended members into one not by vain assertions of parliamentary supremacy but by bonds of sympathy and ties of a common freedom and a common cause The passion for power and glory subdued in him all the sordid parts of humanity, and he made the power and glory of England one with his own. He could change front through resentment or through policy, but in whatever path he moved his objects were the same, not to curb the power of France in America, but to annihilate it crush her navy, cripple her foreign trade, ruin her in India, in Africa, and wherever else, east or west, she had found foothold, gain for England the mastery of the seas, open to her the great highways of the globe, make her supreme in commerce and colonization, and while limiting the activities of her rival to the European continent, Give to her the whole world for a sphere. To this British Roman was opposed the pampered Sardanaphalus of Versailles, with the silken favorite who, by calculated adultery, had bought the power to ruin France. The Marquise de Pompadour, who began life as Jeanne Poisson, Jane Fish, daughter of the head clerk of a banking-house, who then became the wife of a rich financier, and then, as mistress of the king, rose to a pinnacle of gilded ignominy, chose this time to turn out of office the two ministers who had shown most ability and force, Argenson, head of the Department of War, and Macholt, head of the Marine and Colonies, the one because he was not subservient to her will, and the other because he had unwillingly touched the self-love of her royal paramour. She aspired to a share in the conduct of the war, and not only made and unmade ministers and generals, but discussed campaigns and battles with them, while they listened to her prating with a show of obsequious respect since to lose her favor was to risk losing all. A few months later, when blows fell heavy and fast, she turned a deaf ear to representations of financial strait and military disasters, played the heroine, affected a greatness of soul superior to misfortune, and in her perfumed boudoir varied her tiresome graces by posing as a Roman matron in fact she never wavered in her spite against frederick and her fortitude was perfect in bearing the sufferings of others and defying dangers that could not touch her when pitt took office it was not over france but over england that the clouds hung dense and black her prospects were of the gloomiest whoever is in or whoever is out wrote chesterfield I am sure we are undone both at home and abroad. At home by our increasing debt and expenses, abroad by our ill luck and incapacity. We are no longer a nation. And his despondency was shared by many at the beginning of the most triumphant administration in British history. The shuffling weakness of his predecessor had left Pitt a heritage of tribulation from america came news of loudon's manifold failures from germany that of the miscarriage of the duke of cumberland who at the head of an army of germans in british pay had been forced to sign the convention of Klosterzaven, by which he promised to disband them To these disasters was added a third, of which the new government alone had to bear the burden. At the end of summer, Pitt sent a great expedition to attack Rochfort. The military and naval commanders disagreed, and the consequence was failure. There was no light except from far-off India, where Clive won the great victory of Plassey, avenged the black hole of Calcutta, and prepared the ruin of the french power and the undisputed ascendancy of england if the english had small cause as yet to rejoice in their own successes they found comfort in those of their prussian allies the rout of the french at Rossbach, and of the austrians at lothen spread joy throughout their island more than this they felt that they had found at last a leader after their own heart and the consciousness regenerated them for the paltering imbecility of the old ministry they had the unconquerable courage the iron purpose the unwavering faith the indistinguishable hope of the new one england has long been in labour said frederick of prussia and at last she has brought forth a man. It was not only that instead of weak commanders, Pitt gave her strong ones. The same men who had served her feebly under the blight of the Newcastle administration served her manfully and well under his robust impulsion. Nobody ever entered his closet, said Colonel Barr, who did not come out of it, a braver man. That inspiration was felt wherever the British flag waved. Zeal awakened with the assurance that conspicuous merit was sure of its reward, and that no officer who did his duty would now be made a sacrifice, like Admiral Bing, to appease public indignation at ministerial failures. As nature, languishing in chill vapors and dull smothering fogs revives at the touch of the sun so did england spring into fresh life under the kindling influence of one great man with the opening of the year seventeen fifty eight her course of continental victories began the duke of cumberland the king's son was recalled in disgrace and a general of another stamp, Prince Ferdinand of Brunswick, was placed in command of the Germans in British pay, with the contingent of English troops now added to them. The French, too, changed commanders. The Duke of Richelieu, a dissolute old beau, returned to Paris to spend in heartless gallantries the wealth he had gained by plunder, and a young soldier-churchman, the Comte de Clermont, took his place. Prince Ferdinand pushed him hard with an inferior force, drove him out of Hanover, and captured 11,000 of his soldiers. Clermont was recalled and was succeeded by Contades, another incapable. One of his subordinates won for him the Battle of Lutterburg, But the generalship of Ferdinand made it a barren victory, and the campaign remained a success for the English. They made descents on the French coasts, captured saint Servin, a suburb of Saint-Malo, and burned three ships of the line, twenty-four privateers, and sixty merchantmen, then entered Cherbourg, destroyed the forts, carried off or spiked the cannon and burned twenty-seven vessels, a success partially offset by a failure on the coast of Brittany, where they were repulsed with some loss. In Africa they drove the French from the Guinea coast, and seized their establishment at Senegal. It was towards America that Pitt turned his heartiest efforts. His first aim was to take Louisbourg, as a step towards taking Quebec. Then Ticonderoga, that thorn in the side of the northern colonies, and lastly Fort Duquesne, the key of the great west. He recalled Loudon, for whom he had a fierce contempt, but there were influences which he could not disregard, and Major-General Abercrombie, who was next in order of rank, an indifferent soldier though a veteran in years was allowed to succeed him and lead in person the attack on ticonderoga pitt hoped that brigadier lord howe an admirable officer who was joined with abercromby would be the real commander and make amends for all shortcomings of his chief to command the louisbourg expedition colonel Geoffrey amherst was recalled from the german war and made at one leap a major general he was energetic and resolute somewhat cautious and slow but with the bulldog tenacity of grip under him were three brigadiers whitmore lawrence and Wolfe, of whom the youngest is the most noteworthy in the luckless rochefort expedition Colonel james Wolfe was conspicuous by a dashing gallantry that did not escape the eye of Pitt, always on the watch for men to do his work. The young officer was ardent, headlong, void of fear, often rash, almost fanatical in his devotion to military duty, and reckless of life when the glory of England or his own was at stake. The third expedition, that against Fort Duquesne, was given to Brigadier John Forbes, whose qualities well fitted him for the task. During his first term of office, Pitt had given a new species of troops to the British Army. These were the Scotch Highlanders who had risen against the House of Hanover in 1745, and would raise against it again should France accomplish her favorite scheme of throwing a force into Scotland to excite another insurrection for the Stuarts. But they would be useful to fight the French abroad, though dangerous as their possible allies at home, and two regiments of them were now ordered to America. Delay had been the ruin of the last year's attempt against Louisbourg, this time preparation was urged on apace and before the end of winter two fleets had put out to sea one under admiral boscawen was destined for Louisbourg, while the other under admiral osborne sailed for the mediterranean to intercept the french fleet of admiral la who was about to sail from toulon for america osborne Cruising between the coasts of Spain and Africa, barred the way to the Straits of Gibraltar, and kept his enemy imprisoned. La Clue made no attempt to force a passage, but several combats of detached ships took place, one of which is too remarkable to pass unnoticed. Captain Gardiner of the Monmouth, a ship of 470 men and 64 guns, engaged the French ship Foudroyant, carrying a thousand men and eighty-four guns of heavier metal than those of the Englishmen. Gardiner had lately been reproved by Anson, first Lord of the Admiralty, for some alleged misconduct or shortcoming, and he thought of nothing but retrieving his honor. We must take her, he said to his crew, as the Foudroyant hove in sight she looks more than a match for us but i will not quit her while this ship can swim or i have a soul left alive and the sailors answered with cheers the fight was long and furious gardiner was killed by a musket shot begging his first lieutenant with his dying breath not to haul down his flag the lieutenant nailed it to the mast At length the Foudroyant ceased from thundering, struck her colors, and was carried a prize to England. The typical British naval officer of that time was a rugged sea-dog, a tough and stubborn fighter, though no more so than the politer generations that followed, at home on the quarter-deck, but no ornament to the drawing-room, by reason of what his contemporary Entick. The strenuous chronicler of the war calls not unapprovingly the ferocity of his manners while osborne held la clue imprisoned at toulon sir edward hawke worthy leader of such men sailed with seven ships of the line and three frigates to intercept a french squadron from rochefort conveying a fleet of transports with troops for america The French ships cut their cables and ran for the shore, where most of them stranded in the mud, and some threw cannon and munitions overboard to float themselves. The expedition was broken up of the many ships fitted out this year for the succor of Canada and Louisbourg. Comparatively few reached their destination, and these for the most part singly or by twos and threes. Meanwhile, Admiral Boscawen with his fleet bore away for Halifax, the place of rendezvous, and Amherst in the ship Dublin followed in his wake. End of section forty-four.